The Apostle John's account begins in full stride. If you look at verse 46, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. Goes back into Galilee, goes to Cana. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Capernaum's down on the lake, about 18 miles away. Now, the word for official is the word basilikos. You kind of get the sense of the word. That's what we get basilica from in English. And here it can be translated nobleman, king's man, petty king. We'll use one of those, basilicus, nobleman, and uh, official. And the man was evidently an official in Herod's court and was therefore a man of influence and power. So keep that in mind. And he was also a man of wealth because people that served in this capacity with Herod uh, got into the money. So here's a man who had in a sense, at least from ground level in Capernaum, he had everything except one thing. His son was desperately ill. His life was draining away. Light in his young eyes had begun to fade into kind of a distant stare. And his mother and father were involved in a swirling agony and glare of misery. I have to step back and say, any of us who have a few decades under our belts understand something of how that nobleman felt. You've had times when you've, it's not just death, but you come to the end of things. You, everything appears to be dark. And so we can kind of imagine what's inside of him. Behind his eyeballs burned an incessant fire while on the outside was kind of an opaque darkness you couldn't see through because the light in his life, his beloved son, was about to expire. And there was nothing he could do. Absolutely nothing. Despite all of his resources, there was nothing, nothing he could go to. Well, when you understand that, then you see how the news of the arrival of Jesus in Cana of Galilee, down on the lake, about 17 miles away at Capernaum, uh, there was a nobleman. That's where he lived. And, and uh, the, the distance between them, what he knew about it, fanned a glimmer of hope. He had undoubtedly heard of Jesus' uh, miracle of changing the water into wine at Cana of Galilee, more from the townspeople. And so he did what he could do. This basilicus, this nobleman, saddled his horse and set off in a gallop 18 miles away to Cana. I have to say right here, it begins here. I like this guy because there is a nobleness about this nobleman. And you see it that he himself went. 
He didn't send a servant like the Roman centurion did in a similar situation in the Gospel of Luke. He didn't send his wife. He didn't send his relative. Didn't send his lawyers. And so what you see in this man is a man who is so involved with his family, so wrapped up in their children's destiny that he didn't waste a second, but took off on a thunderous ride down to Capernaum. That meeting affected a dramatic contrast between Jesus and the nobleman, the humble savior, because the rich noble humbly approached Jesus, and as you see in verse 47, if you look at that, he asked him to come down and heal his son. Now, there is a great drama in that word asked, because it means that he began to ask, and he asked again, and he asked again, and he continued asking. He kept it up. He was indifferent to surroundings. He didn't care what people thought around him. So the picture of him is repeatedly pleasing with, pleading with Jesus to heal his son. Now, Jesus replied to the officials pleading, and you'll see it in verse 48, is jarring. It's a hard thing. He says to this pleading man, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, period. Wow. It's a tender, welcoming thing. And on the surface, it does seem cold and lacking in sympathy and actually hard, but Jesus' reply is full of grace both to that man everyone around in Capernaum and the whole area of Galilee. There's grace in that hardness. Uh, there's a section in C.S. Lewis' biography, Surprised by Joy, when he relates how he was brought kicking and struggling, eyes darting every way into the kingdom of God. And he reflects on it and says, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. It's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. So what you see is Christ's hard words here are mercifully surgical because, and I just want to say this further about that verse, because you can't see it, the you is plural. You is used twice there. So he's basically saying, unless you, Mr. Basilicon, and everyone else here in Capernaum and Galilee sees signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's what your faith is based on. And you won't believe without it. And in saying this, he addressed the facts recorded earlier in the text in verses 42 through 45 that, first of all, in 42, the despised Samaritans, people outside the covenant, had believed and received Jesus as, you can see it's their Savior of the world. An amazing thing. They just come from there. 
and that his hometown, his own covenant people, his people did not honor him as Savior. It says a prophet is, is, is without honor in his own country. And then, thirdly, in verse 45, the only reason they honored him is because they saw signs and wonders he'd done in Jerusalem. So, with uh, surgical accuracy, the Lord put his finger on the weakness of the people's faith. They were following Jesus because it was like a religious sideshow. Hurry, hurry. Don't miss the latest miracle. Get your popcorn or your matzah or whatever it was. Crowding close so you won't miss the new, well, added appendage miracle. The people had locked in on signs and wonders that Jesus was doing, and they were missing Jesus' real messianic identity. And it seems that this, this nobleman, this basilicon, uh, had the same confused idea because he repeatedly insisted that Jesus come down to Capernaum to heal his son. He thought if Jesus could come down and work his magic, his son would be healed. Well, today there are those who constantly are seeking signs and wonders and miracles to validate their faith and miss the intent of their things, which is to know Jesus himself. So if we focus on sensationalism, miracles and signs, our focus isn't on Christ himself, who alone is sufficient. Very telling. Now, at the same time, our Lord isn't deprecating signs and wonders and miracles because he, in fact, is going to heal that dying man's son. And this sign was going to be involved in leading the whole family to him. So the thrust of what Jesus is saying was, Oh, that you would think less about the wonders and focus on me, Messiah. Jesus wanted him to go beyond the signs, beyond the miracles, and trust in him and believe his word. So as you look, stand, kind of stand back from this, you realize that Jesus' hard, jarring words the nobleman were not a rebuke to him per se, but graced words that would pave the way for further grace. Now this is, a, this is an astonishing story and, and deeply revelatory of what real faith is and what belief is. And it, it's possible as, as we move through this, as we're sitting here, that you can, you can listen to what happened to the Basilicos and never apply it to yourself. But how wonderful if the Holy Spirit, the truth about belief and true belief, would suit it to all of our hearts today or in a deeper way. Now, you get a, a profitable insight into the nobleman's heart as we see his response to Jesus' hard word to him as he simply responds and appeals to Jesus and says, Sir, you see it in verse 49, come down before my child dies. 
He didn't interact with Jesus' rebuke. He didn't disown Jesus' rebuke. And more than that, he didn't assert his position. He didn't say, do you know who I am? I, I'm a basilicos of Herod the Great. Step back, that would have really worked, wouldn't it? The nobleman not be turned away from Jesus. This was his last hope. And so what happened is the man then grabbed a hold of as much as he could comprehend of Jesus' character and pled, Sir, come down before my child dies. That's all he says. Mercy. And then note Jesus' reply in the first part of verse 50. Go, your son will live. Those arresting words contain a partial granting of the man's request and partial denial. He granted the healing and denied he would come down. He did those things. And he gave the guy no sign. No sign at all. So when you step back from this and look at it, you realize the only thing he gave him was his word. And what he was doing, in effect, was elevating the man to higher faith so that his faith would flower. So picture the nobleman standing face to face, uh, the silence settling over those that are crowded around, and Jesus saying to him, Go, your son will live. What did the man think when he heard these words? How would he respond? And here you have it. Verse 50. Underline the word. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went away. No arguing. No pleading. No insistence. Hey, just, just a little sign. Uh, come with me. He simply added up what he had heard that had happened in Cana. He looked at Jesus, heard his words, standing before him, added up, and he believed. So that something happened inside that nobleness, very reverse of the common phrase in our world today, very reverse of this, the phrase is, seeing is believing. We hear that all the time, although with the internet today, I don't know if it's really true anymore, right? Seeing is believing. But that's been common parlance over the generations. But in the noble's life, believing was seen. Even though it was a day's journey between him and his dying son, in his mind's eye, he sees him well and healthy again. The scriptures testify and actually loudly declare or trumpet the relationship between faith and sight. Now we're in the book of John, we're going to go somewhere else for a moment, but here in the book of John in chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus declares to his fellow Jews and detractors, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it. What did he see? I mean, he believed, right? And he saw it. Now, 
in Hebrews chapter 11 that was so beautifully read this morning, that's a chapter we call the Hall of Faith because it records the faith of great saints and patriarchs in the Old Testament. We read in verse 13, All these died in faith, not having received the same things promised, but having seen and greeted them from afar. So they saw it in faith. By faith they saw the promises. Uh, when the scripture was being read this morning, I noted a couple of things that I hadn't noted before. And uh, in Hebrews eleven thirteen, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. All these people saw them. And then uh, in verse 27, about Moses, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He saw God by faith. Well, Hebrews 11:27. Uh, is so beautiful because he saw him who was invisible. He saw God by faith. Now, this chapter, chapter 11, begins uh, with a famous verse. A lot of you have it in memory. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of what? Things not seen. That's the English Standard Version. Here in the King James, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. New English Bible. And what is faith? Faith gives substance to our hopes and makes us certain of realities we do not see. The old Phillips version. Now faith means that we have full confidence in the things we hope for, for it means being certain of things we cannot see. New Living uh, translation. Faith is the confidence that we have and the hope for what, what actually will happen. It gives us assurance of things we cannot see. So over and over again, you see that believing is seen. Well, on the basis of Jesus' word, the nobleman saw his boy healthy and well, the fading light back in his eyes. And he believed with such certitude that our text says in verse 20, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Wow. What it is, it's, it's by faith that we see the living colors of God's word. If you've been a Christian for a while, you are familiar with the promise of Romans 8.28 and probably are reciting it to yourself right now. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Isn't that beautiful? For those who love God, we know that all things work together for good 
for those that are called according to his purpose. But I have to say, if you're outside the faith or you're not a believer, it's just a nice ancient maxim. Nice. But by faith, it comes to life. Why? Because that helps us see the unseen, that our troubles are working for good. So by faith, Romans 8.28 becomes a living, leaping, bounding, flaming text. That's why it lights us up. Because we believe it. And believing is seen. Now, if you've lived uh, a lot of decades like me, you, you've had times when everything was dark and uh, there was a fire be, behind your eyes and there was just smoke and dust all around. You've had that happen. Uh, being in the hospital in Central DuPage and seeing my wife bleed out where she was at number four at hemoglobin seeing her face swell up like a pumpkin and thinking, I'm saying goodbye to my lovely wife. I remember that. And I remember believing Romans 8.28 in the midst of all of that and hanging on to it. And If it had taken her that time, it would be true. She'd be with him in glory. Uh, facing difficult personal relationships, stresses with colleagues, betrayal, where things are really dark. But having this text, leaping, bounding, flaming, living, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those that are called according to his purpose. The secular world says seeing is believing. But the immutable truth is that believing is seen. Again, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now something amazing happens here in Noble's growth in faith in verses 51 to 53. Look at it with me. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Wow. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. Now notice, he says, yesterday. And I think that is really beautiful because the nobleman, if the nobleman left town at the seventh hour, which is 1 p.m., and he's got his horse, and certainly all noblemen had horses, he could have been home about 5 or 6 p.m. But it says, the next day. He didn't run right back to Capernaum. He Apparently, he believed so implicitly in Jesus' word that he stayed in Cana for a while. Perhaps he chatted with some of the disciples. 
maybe hope to see Jesus in action. But the thing that you see is, oh, did this guy believe? And when he returned, he met his servants on the road with the breathless news that his son had recovered. He asked what time it happened. And when they replied that it was the seventh hour, one o'clock in the afternoon, he checked his, I would say his uh, Rolex time clock, because he was rich, and said to himself, just what I thought. What a difference between the frantic, breathless, pounding ride to Cana and now the steady, assured ride back to Capernaum. And the difference was his faith in God's word. Now as the sparks fly upward, according to Job, man is born for trouble. Trouble comes to everybody here. And it comes again and again and again. And things that you don't want to face. And you don't want to know what's coming. Right? That's the way it is. But if our lives are worried and frenetic and breathless, we need to embrace the promises of God and his word to us. Now, this nobleman's faith was well rewarded. His initial belief in Jesus' word promises may not have been fully informed by the truth that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, as the Samaritans concluded, as, as has been said, but his faith flowered. So that that we read that when he heard the precise time, 1 p.m., and his son was healed, he himself believed, it certainly informed and elevated his faith. And then when he got home, what does it say? All of his household believed. Well, in the full flow of things, they came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Some biblical scholars theorized that the Basilicon uh, was a man named Chusa, mentioned in Luke 8.3, who was a steward of the household of David, and because Chusa's wife attended and cared for Jesus in his ministry. Maybe so. But what you have right now is believers in the household of Herod. Wow. Amazing. What a flowering of faith in Galilee. Well, our passage shows that there are two conditions to bring the flowering of faith. The first is, the, is to hear God's word. Romans 1.17, says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. So we have to hear God's word and immerse ourselves in it so that we will become fertile soils for faith to flower. You all know the text. Colossians 3.16 gives us memorable expression, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, so richly that you sing it in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and you encourage one another. And the second is then to exercise faith, like the nobleman did. There's an old preacher 
His volumes are in the church library. Alexander McLaren put it this way, the way to increase faith is to exercise faith. And the true parent of perfect faith is the experience of blessings that come from, and listen to this, the crudest, narrowest, blindest, feeblest faith that a man can exercise. And then he says, trust him as you can. And do not be afraid of inadequate exceptions or of a feeble grasp. Trust him as you can, and he will give you so much more than you expected. Well, each of us are going to have ample opportunities in the remainder of this year and in the years to come to find ourselves in a position to exercise faith. And if we turn to the word and allow it to speak to us and believe and act upon his word, our faith will flower. That's what's going on here. C.S. Lewis' words are true. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. That nobleman had to be struck on the head to get his attention. We may be, have things coming our way that feel like that, in a sense of closing darkness and barren futility. But the spiritual fact is you may be on the verge of great spiritual growth, even flowering, if you turn to his word. Well, you heard what the nobleman did, that there's one who will meet your deepest need. And so he flew to his feet, as we are to Jesus. We, he heard his words as we are to hear his words and then obey him and find our faith flowering. I, uh, as I was sitting in the car, just before I came in, I was reflecting upon this as uh, an old man, an octogenarian, can't even say it. And, uh, and I thought about the fact of, of Romans 8.28, for those who love God, all things work together for good that are called according to his purpose. And then I thought about the promises that we ought to all be resting on, but you really rest on when you're in the last decade of your life or whatever it is. And I thought about 1 John 3, 1. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I believe that. So I see it, right? Or... Philippians 3, 20 and 21, when it talks about Christ, who will give us our bodies. Christ gives us our bodies, according to Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our citizens from heaven, when he comes back, he will give us our bodies. And I believe it. And so I see it. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep. And it goes on about talking about how the Lord Jesus Christ will return with a trumpet sound. I believe that with all my heart. And I see it. 
read Revelation 21 about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven adorned as a bride and Christ wiping away every tear. Well, I actually can't quite see the new Jerusalem as a bride, but I believe it. And he's going to wipe away every tear. So believing is seen. What a great thing to see those things and hold them dear. Believing is seen. Amen.